Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. In this episode of Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska. All of a sudden, I, something kind of moves up on the moraines um, and it catches my eye. And so I kind of look up and I see um, two moose sitting up on the moraine. And I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, makes sense. There's moose. Uh, it's, you know, minus 20 in January. What else could it possibly be? Um, and then I see one of the moose stand up on two legs. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know moose did that. <laughs> one couple moves to Alaska from Washington, D.C. and jumps right into the wilderness life, only to be surprised to come across some critters you don't normally see in the deep, dark parts of winter. And from the Dark Winter Nights archives comes one of my favorite stories about a bear showing up at a very inconvenient time. All the dogs jumped into the river and started swimming out to him. And, and Seymour and I are going, this is not good at all, you know? Because we have no idea what's gonna happen when those dogs catch the bear, but dogs swim a lot faster than bears. They're gonna catch him out in the middle of the river. Hey bear, up next on Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. There are tons of ways Alaska can kill you in the winter, of course. Hypothermia, frostbite, falling through the ice, stumped by a moose, etc. Take your pick. But the one nice thing about winter is that you don't have to worry about bears, right? They're hibernating. You can stroll through the woods with a salami tied around your neck with total peace of mind. Well, I guess there are still wolves. I forgot about them. Anyway, you're at least good on bears. Unless you're my dear friends, Ryan and Val. I interviewed them about their experience with insomniac bears at our February 2020 live event in Fairbanks. But you, so you've been here about a year, and I know one of the things that you really wanted to ch check out while you were here was the Kastner Glacier and that ice tunnel. Have you all gone and checked that thing out? <laughs> South of Delta? Pretty amazing, and you were all pretty excited to get out there and see it, right? Yeah, so I'd been down there a couple of times. Val had never seen it, though. Um, and so in January of this year uh, was our anniversary, our one-year wedding anniversary. Um, yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Wait till the end of the story, though, before yeah. you applaud. <laughs> and so I actually, I got her a, a, a 20 below sleeping bag, uh, as you do when you uh, live in Fairbanks. Yeah, Val, how did you feel about that as an anniversary gift? There it was. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, there and, it was. And, that can't, undeniable that there it was. <laughs> and so um, I really wanted to try it out. Um, and so I initially proposed winter camping, but that was rejected um, yeah. outright. Hard and, no. <laughs> and so um, I, I rented the Donnelly Creek cabin, which is a cabin down in the Alaska range. It's a DNR cabin. You can rent it online. And our plan was to stay in there. And then um, the next day, we were going to go out and see the Kastner Ice Cave. Um, and so Val was very adamant about it. She was not going to sleep down there or go to the ice cave if it was below minus five, I think she said. Um, it was a hard line, no, non-negotiable. It was, yes, and I was told it would be warmer there, which in fairness, I think it was negative 30 in Fairbanks that day, so low bar for warmer, <laughs> but it was warmer <laughs> by 10 degrees, so. <laughs> and so, so we get down to the cabin, and um, it's not minus five, it is like minus 25. Um, so not, you know, below Val's threshold. So I get out of the car and um, 
I get up to the cabin, and you can kind of drive with, up to like 50 yards from the cabin. So I get up there, and DNR actually emails you a little um, a password, and there's a little combination lock on the door. And so I it's went. All, it's all very sophisticated. Very sophisticated. <laughs> um, and so I went up, and I, I put in the combination to the, the code, and it doesn't work at all. And so I'm like trying it again. Val at this point has not even gotten out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm kind of. Well, you, you, if I recall, you had gotten out of the car briefly. Right? I got out briefly. I looked at the lock. I got back in the car. And your, your hair froze in that amount? Of well, so, yeah, I think that was the first time it happened. I yeah. had this moment where I said to him, I have to get back in the car because I got snow in my coat somehow. And now my, you know, there's snow in my hair. And he said, no, your hair is freezing. <laughs> And I said, no, that's impossible. <laughs> it's not wet. <laughs> Why would it freeze? And he said, no, your hair is freezing. And I said, no. Um, but yeah, no, my hair is freezing. So. She, right. <laughs> she, be she believed me when it started happening to her eyelashes. <laughs> um, and so, so I, I, I'm trying to yell back to Val in the car. She literally will not even open the window to like yell back to me about the code. I cracked it. Yeah, she, she <laughs> may have cracked it a little bit. And so I actually ended up having to, um, the, the, the lock is only held in by a little latch, and it's by like three screws. And so I actually had to unscrew it. And you could tell that every person who'd gotten into this cabin for the past 10 times <laughs> had gotten in the exact same way because there were screws all over the ground. <laughs> and then when you got into the cabin, there was a cup full of screws of the exact same size sitting there right on the table. And so, so we got into the cabin, we had a nice night, it was warm, we, and um, the next day we went. Whoa, 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 I feel like. <laughs> was it warm, Val? It was warm um, until we ran out of wood. <laughs> but we had the sleeping bag, so it was fine. We had, we had the sleeping bag. I don't think I got out of the sleeping bag once we were in the cabin, but. That was warm. And so we got down to the, um, the Castner. It's basically uh, when you're driving down the Richardson Highway, it's um, uh, the place where it says Castner Creek. And usually when you're down there in the winter, it's probably the most touristy place in the Alaska range, meaning there's like maybe five people who go out there per day. But generally, there's like one or two cars down there. Every time I've been down there, I've seen people. But this day, there was nobody. Um, and so it was really flat light. It was not, usually when you're down there, it's these beautiful mountains. You can see this mountain called White Princess all the way at the end of the, uh, the glacier. Um, today, it was really cloudy, blowing snow, probably like minus 20 degrees with wind chill probably colder. Um, but Val really wanted to still go. I like gave her the option and she was like all, you know. I, I really, really wanted to go see the Ice Cave. Um, I think the only reason I agreed to this trip was because I really wanted to see the Ice Cave. He's been out there so many times. I've never been. Um, I was told that there is nowhere closer to stay to the Ice Cave, um, only to drive by if anyone's been to um, Black Rapids Lodge. It's this beautiful lodge down there, which we drove right past <laughs> on the way from our cabin um, to and get it's there. What? 10, 15 minutes away from the About parking 10 lot. 10 minutes, I'd say, to get to the lot for the game. So we're 15 below my threshold. I now know hair can freeze, and but we're there. And I just want to see the ice cave. Yeah. So I'm like, whatever. We've come this far, so we're going we're gonna to go. We and slept it, in the cabin also, which was, yeah. so we're going to go. And the ice cave, it's not that far from the road. And so it's really like, you know, maybe a mile and a quarter and it doesn't take that, you know, that long to get out there. So our kind of theory was we'll just run out there and run back and it'll be fine. 30 minutes stops out and back. Uh, right? Yeah. 
He, exactly. He said 15, and, uh, <laughs> well, go on. And so we're, we're kind of going out there, and it's really cold. I'm on skis. Val's on snowshoes, so she's kind of, like, leading the way. And you weave in and out of the Kastner Creek as you kind of go toward it, and um, there's kind of hills on either side of you, and so you're kind of weaving in and out of the hills as you kind of get closer to the glacier. Which, you know, the entire way there on this 15-minute trip, he's... You know, I'm saying, where's the ice cave? And he's pointing at various, he's saying, that's the ice cave. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then we get to that point, and I'm like, there's, where's the ice cave? And he's like, oh, it's right there. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 it's here. He said it was here. Are we there or are we close? Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. So at some point, we do, we come around this corner, and you get to the moraine. So moraines are basically like the end of, Glaciers, I'm sure a glaciologist is, is going to be completely wrong, but um, the, the, my understanding is moraines are kind of like the end of glaciers. It's like a bunch of rock and ice, and that's kind of where the Kastner um, ice cave is. It's under one, like the first one of these kind of big, steep mounds of ice and rock. Um, so we round the, the last corner, and you can kind of see the, that moraine where the ice cave is under, and so we're walking toward it. Yeah, and how are you holding up now? Did you have goggles or anything? What were you doing um, for warmth? So we had started out in goggles because there was so much blowing snow um, because of the wind, and I had ended up ditching my goggles because they kept fogging up while we're, while we're hiking, and I couldn't see anything, and it's flat light to begin with. Um, and so at this point, my contact lenses are now kind of covered in ice. <laughs> I didn't know contact lenses could do that. I didn't either, yeah. Rob. <laughs> Turns out they can. <laughs> um, but we're going to see the ice cave. So <laughs> it's all going to be worth it. Yep. We're going to see the ice cave. And so we round the corner, and we're kind of walking. We're probably walking toward this moraine for a good 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, I kind of like... And we're, and we're looking, very importantly, we're looking down the entire time because we're trying to avoid falling into any holes in the creek. And so we're paying attention to kind of like what's in front of us. And so all of a sudden, I, something kind of moves up on the moraines um, and it catches my eye. And so I kind of look up and I see um, two moose sitting up on the moraine. And I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, makes sense. There's moose. Uh, it's, you know, minus 20 in January. What else could it possibly be? Um, and then I see one of the moose stand up on two legs. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know moose did that. <laughs> oh, Ryan, you haven't been here long enough. <laughs> and so then the moose gets back down on two legs and gives me a profile view of what I now see is a huge grizzly bear. And it's with another smaller grizzly bear that looked like a year, I think probably a yearling or you know, a year old um, cub. And so I immediately grab Val and go, bear, and her eyes. <laughs> They just and, cracked, didn't they? It was like yeah, literally. Well, and was so it she, that e sound or the bang sound? No, e exactly. And she goes, she goes here, <laughs> and then she turns and starts to run in the other direction. In snowshoes. Though, in, right? in snowshoes. I I don't think I started to run. You definitely started to well, run. Well, so <laughs> so. About 30 seconds prior to Ryan saying this, I'd had this moment where I look up on top of what is allegedly the actual ice cave, and I see these two shapes, and I immediately think, oh my god, bears, 
And then I think, no, it's January, it's negative 20 degrees out, they're, they're rocks or they're shrubs or they're something else. And then he says to me, bears? And I'm like, no, I've thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> they're not bears. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, and so the next thing, next thing she asks me is, where's the gun? You have the gun, right? And I'm like, you know, your mind is racing in these situations. And so I'm like, yeah, I know exactly where the gun is in my bag back in the car. <laughs> because I know at least, and there's probably at least 10 of you sitting in the audience right now who told me, bears don't come out in January. You don't need to carry a gun in the Alaska range in January because you'll never see a bear because they're all sleeping. Well, that's not true. <laughs> um, so the only thing I actually had on me were two ice tools. Um, and crampons. And so, you know, your mind is kind of racing in those situations. So I'm like, I, I had these ideas, like maybe I'll put my crampons on and like fight the bears like some sort of cat. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I kind of, <laughs> and then I thought about that and was like, let's just get out of here <laughs> really quickly. Because the entire time, I'm looking over my shoulder and I can see them walking around up there. And I think the reason they're up there is because it's kind of a t relatively touristy area. They prob people probably leave food there. And Val is like, well, should we make noise? Because that's what you're supposed to do when bears are around. And I'm like, well, why are they out in January? <laughs> and the reason they're out is because they're probably hungry. And so I felt like making noise was probably where we didn't want to be at that point. <laughs> Um, except she's yelling at me. Hey, well, dinner. Hey, <laughs> dinner, dinner, dinner. Hey, dinner. Yeah, well, the thing is, right around then is also when he mentions that he's left the gun in the car, which I don't even like having the gun, but bear spray freezes at this temperature. And also, who brings bear spray in January? So, um, so I found out there's no gun, so now I'm kind of screaming my head off while he's telling me we probably shouldn't scream. And by the way, don't run. Stop running. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, so, um, so when everybody's asked me since we got, well, did you get like a picture of them or anything like that? And I actually, I actually stopped. Um, he, he tried. I, tr I stopped and actually was like, we should like take a picture. And she like, without even breaking stride, goes, I will kill you before they can if you stop to take a picture right now. <laughs> like just blew right past me. <laughs> and so it actually took us to get to this point, probably 45 minutes. And it literally took us 15 minutes to get back to the car. <laughs> so you were right. <laughs> exactly. It's just a matter of motivation. <laughs> exactly. Um, so unfortunately, we didn't get to see the ice cave. But it comes full circle because literally the next weekend, when we first told Rob this story, we were down at the Lodge of Black Rapids, and we ended up going back to the ice cave, this time with a gun. And with Rob. And with Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and you told me it would be 15 minutes, too. And it was not 15 minutes. <laughs> And I spent the whole time with my hood wrapped around my face looking at the butt of the person in front of me because I still don't know how you saw the bear because it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> I was just trying not to freeze my face off. Yeah. So this is a typical time where um, with, with Dark Winter Nights and other storytelling programs, we like to hear what you learned from this experience. Is there anything you would uh, say that you two have learned? As a if it's, uh, what I learned is if it stands up on two legs, uh, it's not a moose. All right. <laughs> Okay. And Val, did you learn anything? Uh, bring the gun. Okay. Ryan and Val, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much. Ryan and Val, they shared that story 
at our February 2020 live event in Fairbanks. Our next story comes from the Dark Winter Nights archives and is absolutely one of my favorites because it demonstrates how quickly things can go from just fine to very, very bad when you're living out in the Alaskan bush. This story comes from our very first season of Dark Winter Nights and I've left in the original narration so you can hear how bad I was at narrating back then. Randy Brown is pretty much exactly what you picture when you imagine a man who could survive all on his own in the deep woods of Alaska. He grew up in New Mexico, but moved to Alaska in 1975 at the age of 17. The following year, he moved out into the deep woods and spent the next 15 years fishing, hunting, trapping, and mushing dogs. In 1991, he moved to Fairbanks with his wife and two boys, and Fairbanks has been their home ever since. He shared this story about the well-meaning, but not always helpful nature of dogs. Here's Randy Brown with a story we call A Bear by the Tail. So... I moved out in the woods and spent about 15 years out there, starting in the mid-70s. And uh, I had just graduated high school down in New Mexico, moved up to Alaska, and within a year, I had moved out to the uh, upper Yukon in that stretch between Eagle and Circle. That's about a 160-mile stretch of Yukon, and there were five tributary rivers that flowed into the Yukon in that stretch. And they were, they were rivers as big as the Chena and the Salcha. So there was a lot of country you could get to with a boat. So um, there were about 20 different families and individuals, families, couples, individuals living out in that country at the time. And all of them had come from somewhere else, migrated up to that area, found some place where they were a little distant from any of their neighbors, and built cabins and started living off the land. And, and at that time, there wasn't anybody to say they couldn't. So this is, the, this is the country and the people that John McPhee wrote about in his book, Coming Into the Country. So all of us that were living out there had this thing in common, you know. I mean, we were, we were all living in cabins. We all hunted and fished for our food. We all trapped fur for our, our, for our cash. Nobody carried cash at all out in the woods, you know. So the way it would work is we would take our fur into Eagle mail it sometime in late winter, mail it down to the Seattle or the Vancouver fur auctions, and sometime the next summer we'd get a check. So here's a check for like 3000 or 5000 or $8,000, you know, it's your yearly income, depending on how ambitious you were as a trapper and, and what the fur prices were and all, you never knew what it was going to be. And you go to the post office, because there wasn't any bank there, right? And the post office would cash your check and then write a bunch of postal money orders. That was, and then you take the money order out to the store and buy your stuff and leave. And usually you spent it all, and so there wasn't any left over, but sometimes you had a little bit, but you didn't take it out in the woods because there was nothing to buy out there. And nobody had jobs. Nobody living out in the woods had jobs. You know, they were fully engaged in living off the land. And a lot of people would only go to town once or twice a year or once or twice, you know, every three or four years. So there were a lot of people that just stayed out in the woods. One of the other things that we all had in common was dogs. We all uh, got around with dogs and, um, you know, mushing in the winter and then, and then packing in the summer. And, um, and these weren't, you know, the little race huskies you see around town here. These were, these were these monster dogs. They were 100 pound, 120 pound animals. And the reason we had big animals out there is because, you know, there was nobody making trails for you. And we were, we were, there was anywhere from 15 to 20 miles between, um, between cabins, between home sites out there. So 
you know, you, nobody was going to break any, tra you, you didn't run across broken trails, hardly ever. And so if you had a broken trail, it's because you did it. And those big dogs were capable of moving through the deep snow, breaking trail. And uh, it worked for us out there. They weren't very fast, but they were, and they had heavy enough fur that they could, you know, sleep without any problem in 60 below, which we used to have back in those days. Because people lived a long ways apart, uh, there wasn't ever anybody to come and take over your, take care of your dogs when you went to do something, right? And so your dogs went with you everywhere. Everybody took their dogs wherever they went. If they, if they were going down to the Yukon to fish for king salmon, the dogs went with them. If they were heading up into the mountains to hunt sheep, the dogs went with them up there. And the dogs would pack gear and stuff. And, and, uh, and, and we would put, you know, if, we, if you got a sheep up in the mountains, they would pack the meat out, you know, a ham of, uh, of, of, a, of a sheep on either side, and the dog would walk away with it. It might be 40 pounds or 45 pounds, but these big dogs could take it. But, but really, all the animals out there saw the dogs as wolves. And wolves, as a pack, are the, are the, the most powerful predator team out there, period. And of course, us, with our dogs, were even more so. But you know, as good as the dogs were, they could cause trouble. They could screw up a simple situation. You know, make it so that, so that something that seemed really simple become really, really hard. And so there was this guy, Seymour, and Seymour and I had fish camps across the river from each other on the Yukon. And we fished the same eddy at Glen Creek Bluff, which was about 15 miles upstream from the Candic, right? There had been a big slide, it created a, a, a big eddy down there, and it caught fish like crazy. So it could feed as many people wanted to be there. So anyway, Seymour and I in, in August, so, so king salmon season's in July, and by mid-August there's no fish in the river. Chum salmon are still a couple of weeks off, and, um, and you don't want to shoot a moose for a long time yet, you know. But, but we wanted a good piece of meat, so he and I took off down there hunting, and we had five dogs along with us, and we got down to the Candic River, and we climbed up on bluffs and looked around, walked sloughs, and so I, we had two guns with us, I had a, my big gun, the 243, and Seymour had his 22 because we had to feed the dogs too, right? So we're, we're shooting squirrels for the dogs and we have a net in the water and we're catching pike. And, um, and, and we spent a couple of days down there. We didn't find a bear. So we're headed back up the river and, uh, and you know, we don't have a, a motor, so we're lining the canoe and, and on good stretches of the bank, we took the dogs up. Two dogs can pull a canoe just fine, you know? So we're sitting in this canoe, cruising up the river and and uh, Seymour and I spot a bear. It's in the river, it's maybe a quarter mile up from us, but he's taken off from our side of the river, swimming over to the other side. And the river there was about 500 yards wide, so the bear was only part way across. He had a long ways to go. So we pulled into shore, got out, we took our dogs out of harness, and you know, we're, we're kind of talking in low tones and you know, keeping crouched down. We don't want this bear to see us. And, uh, and the dogs, though, are, they, they really read body language great. They're a lot better than any of us at reading body language. So they're, they're, they're like, no, something is up, and they don't know what, so they're all hypervigilant. You know? we're, we know that they know that something's up, and so we're, aiming, we're going downriver, facing downriver and bringing our rifles up, because usually if you point your rifle at something, all the dogs, you know, they know something's going to die over there, and they get all excited, but they weren't going with this sham, right? They weren't going with it. And they're all looking up river because they know that's where we were first looking. <laughs> so finally, 
we had this one dog, he would watch jets moving across the sky. He, he spotted that bear out in the river. It's still, you know, 300 yards or something upstream from us and maybe 150 yards offshore. And so he takes off and all the other dogs take off running after him, roaring up the bank. And Seymour and I are going, this is not good. This is just not good. It is not so simple as it was a moment ago. So all the dogs get up there. I mean, they might, they might not even know it's a bear. They might think it's a beaver. And they love chasing beavers in the water. So, so the dogs get up till they were even with the bear. And we're, we're you know, crossing our fingers. Okay, well, maybe they won't make noise because the bear still didn't see him. But no, they barked at him. And so the bear turns around, lifting his nose in the air, you know, trying to get wind of this and couldn't. And, and finally he realized he could see the dogs and he knew, oh, there's a pack of wolves over there. I'm not going back to that side. So he turns back around and continues his journey, right? And all the dogs jumped into the river and started swimming out to him. And, and Seymour and I are going, this is not good at all, you know? Because we have no idea what's gonna happen when those dogs catch the bear. But dogs swim a lot faster than bears. They're gonna catch him out in the middle of the river. And we don't know how big this bear is either. All we can see is his head. And so, and so we're starting to freak out a little bit, but we're, we're not indecisive people, right? I mean, we were used to making decisions and they, sometimes they had to be split second and that, we were getting there, you know, because the dogs are making their way out. So we think, well, we can shoot the bear from here and then the bear's gonna sink, right? Because bears don't float in, in the river. A lot of animals do, but bears don't. And so we're thinking, we're not gonna be able to live with ourselves if we do that. So Seymour, who was a few years older than me, he has this idea. He says, listen, you got the big gun. You get in front of the canoe. I'll get in the back. We'll paddle out there. We'll beat the dogs to the bear. Right when we're just about on him, you shoot him and then grab him. <laughs> right? I'm in, I'm in my early 20s, right? And he's older than me. So I say, hey, that's our best option as far as I can see. So we get in this boat. And we go roaring out there, and we pass the dogs, and we, get to the, we got to the bear about two boat lengths ahead of the dogs. And I popped him right in the head and reached down immediately and grabbed him, you know, because he was maybe five or six feet out in front of me when I shot him. And he was on his way down. And I grabbed him by the fur right in front of the tail. And, of course, we're, we're moving really fast, and he's like a sea anchor at this point. So he nearly pulled me out of the boat as this canoe comes to a sudden stop. And then the bear's nerves are going, so his legs are going, and I'm hanging on to him like this. And then the dogs caught up with us, right? And the, the dogs jump on this bear, and they start biting him and shaking. You know, that's what they do. And, uh, and they're, they're in a frenzy, you know, and, and I'm afraid they're going to bite my hand. But even if they pull him out of my hand, he sinks and we lose him. So I grab a paddle, and I'm whacking the dogs with the paddle while holding on to this bear. And Seymour's laughing in the back of the canoe, right? I mean, there isn't really anything he can do about it because if he comes to the front of the canoe, we're going to flip it, you know? So he couldn't do anything but laugh. Well, finally, I persuade the dogs to give me a little bit of space, and they back off. And Seymour and I look at each other, you know, and it's like, we got him. You know, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so we tried to pull him into the canoe, and that didn't work. He was too big. So uh, we tied him onto the side of the canoe and uh, paddled to shore, kind of like, you know, that, that uh, big marlin in Old Man in the Sea, right? So we, we paddled over to shore, losing about a mile of ground, and drug him up on the beach. 
and he was um, he was about a 250 pound cinnamon faced black bear. You know, they they got kind of reddish fur on him, and he had fattened up really nice. He was uh, he'd been eating berries for a while, so it was a tremendous piece of meat that we were successfully able to get despite the dogs. And uh, in retrospect, you know, there were probably a couple of things that could have gone wrong with that deal. <laughs> I wouldn't advocate it. But most of the time out in the woods, things worked out for us. You know, that's just the way it was. Hey, thanks a lot. That's my story. Randy Brown. He shared that story at our April 2015 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks so much for listening to this Hey Bear episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Today's episode was edited by myself, Rob Prince. Storyteller audio recording by John Huff and Matt Hutter of Alaska Universal Productions. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.